The state of higher education is tumultuous. Not a single week goes by without some story of political activism, unjust cancellation, campus protest, etc. hitting the news. Our universities really don't have to be like this. Rolston College aims to reshape this landscape. Alongside its MA in the humanities, Rolston is launching a summer school teaching Latin in Sicily, Rome and other sites. The program, running from July to September, offers immersive language learning with experts, literary reading, seminars and even archaeological visits. Most importantly, this course is designed for people who have never studied Latin. Anyone in the world can apply, and the strongest applicants will be awarded full scholarships that cover the cost of the entire program. Apply by the 31st of May at rolston.ac forward slash Latin dash program. Those moments of struggle uh, where you are pushed and steel sharpens steel and pressure creates diamond, those are fundamentally uh, important because those are the moments of real deep personal transformation. They argue that there's no such thing as objectivity and truth and they place a, a, a theoretical and philosophical primacy on epistemology, how we know what we know. And they move away from an ontology, what actually exists. There's no such thing as truth or objectivity or science, and therefore everything is about contestation. Power. Power. What you see is what I call a trauma shield, mm. a trauma mm. bubble. It's now become a weapon in yeah. order to shut people up. Yeah. On the campus, you can have these ideas, uh, but when they spill out, you can begin to see the human costs of some of this stuff. And we're doing this in the context of an increasingly multipolar international system as an influence operation, a psychological operation, I'm not saying it's all rest at the, heat, the, the feet of Chinese or Russian propagandists. The idea that there's not influence of psychological warfare taking place is for the birds, trust me. Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kisson. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our guest today is a professor of international security at the University of Exeter and a fellow at the Council on Geostrategy and senior advisor at the Legatum Institute. He writes about American foreign policy, geopolitics and the culture wars and his writing has appeared in the Daily Telegraph, the Times, the Critic, the Spectator and many other outlets. His latest book is called Against Decolonization, Campus Culture Wars and the Decline line of the West, Doug Stokes. Welcome to Trigonometry. Thank you very much. It's great to have you on the show. We're going to talk about the decline of the West, a favoured theme on, on this <laughs> show, as always, uh, which pleases both of us for different reasons. Um, but before we do, tell us a little bit about who are you, how are you, where you are, what has been the journey through life that leads you to be sitting here talking to us? Uh, well, I, I was born and bred in London, in East London, Hackney, East London. Lived there for 24 years. I then left the UK for about a year. I lived and worked in uh, in Bosnia, quite close to the just after the war had finished. I lived in a place called Bridgeco in northern Bosnia. It's still a very contested space. I lived there for about a year. Joined two halves of what was called what still is the Republic of Srpska. So I lived there for a year, uh, and then I came back. I lived in the West Country. I was at Bristol University, my master's and PhD at Bristol University. Then I moved around the UK quite a lot. So that that that's my kind of per obviously it's potted history. That's my personal history. Uh, and now I'm a professor at University of Exeter, been there for 10 years, uh, and I do various other things, work on lots of different projects, the new book's obviously out, and I'm also a senior advisor to the Legatum Institute. And uh, one of the things we were keen to talk with you about is essentially the, the, the question that we like to throw at all of our guests is, what's going on, Doug? What's, what's going on? What's going on? <laughs> yeah, what's going wow. on? Wow, okay. Well, what's well, going on? Well, well, what I'll do is I'll, I'll link it back to the book. Of right. course you so, will, so, so, you're so, here to promote the book. Yeah. Well, I'm here, no, I'm here to have a conversation with you two. I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> that's the important thing for me. But, yeah. So the, the, the book makes a sets of arg different sets of arguments. That, that, I mean, what, what, what motivated me to write that book was, uh, you know, I've always seen universities as somewhere where we can have open and rational debate and open inquiry, in an ideal world at least, uh, and really, universities are sort of the sort of the motors of human civilization. You know, you can, contestation. You can have these incredible ideas taking place. So wonderful set cultural centres of, of, of really. But what I what I really really found was over the last sort of uh, sort of there's been a period of time, especially over the last five years, and especially after you know post George Floyd, there was a sort of increasingly creeping illiberalism and authoritarianism on the campuses. 
manifested around various types of issues. Uh, and in, in particular, this kind of idea of, de of de decolonization and decolonizing the curriculum, uh, which itself is kind of quite a contested ideology. It draws from uh, a specific sets of theories, post-structuralism, post-modernism, post-colonialism, but it was increasingly being imposed by university authorities uh, and executive teams. And I thought that that was a grave threat to our universities and to sort of liberal values of pluralism and openness and uh, and free inquiry. So so the book is really about that process. It looks at the, the ways in which uh, there's been these kind of increasingly moral panics within Western politics and the ways in which uh, what I sort of identify as sort of professional managerial elites, technocratic elites, if you can put those in, in, the, in those kind of terms, have often sort of latched on to, the, to this and a sort of a politics of vulnerability uh, so where they're, they're, they're enabled to sort of control the narratives to, to some extent, but also to, 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 to lead alleged oppressed uh, minorities, etc., to some sort of technocratic solution or salvation, and, uh, and the power ultimately rests with them. So the book looks at that, and then it, it unpacks some of the theories, some of the philosophical ideas of that, then relates it, I'm very keen to relate to much bigger, a much bigger well, picture. Well, this is why I asked you what's going on, because everything you've said so far will be a very familiar story to our audience. Uh, these are questions we've been looking at for, for several years now. But why, what I found interesting about your work in your book is that you talk about the bigger picture, what's going on that th these things are more of a symptom of rather than just being the problem itself. So what is at the core of everything that's happening? In terms of the, the, the kind of the broader culture war, well, there's multiple levels that you can analyze it, right? So I, th I think the, the, one of the first big things we need to understand is that uh, what takes place in, in popular culture or in, in our life here in, in the UK many of it draws from much deeper philosophical currents. And I think I find it very frustrating, people that talk about the culture or a lot. Uh, essentially, I see it, those discussions about sp specific issues, you know, diversity managers in, in the National Health Service or, you know, uh, various cultural issues. You really, I, I find it frustrating because you're ultimately talking about a sort of tactical elements of a much broader cultural and philosophical malaise. Which is what? Well, so what, what, what is it? So essentially what I would say is the wellspring of a lot of this stuff comes from various theoretical elements that we've seen developing in the humanities and social sciences in the Anglophone universities in particular over the last 20 to 30 years. So what, what, you, what you ultimately had is um, essentially you had a, a critique of uh, 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 Western civilization. And in particular, you had post-structuralist and post-modernist philosophers, so Michel Foucault, Jacques Derrida, Edward Said. I'm sure you're, you're familiar with, with those kind of those mm -hmm. thinkers. And the essential critique that they make, and, the, and they move away, and it's also a direct attack to, attack on Marxism, which is quite interesting because often, the sort of some of the analysis says that the culture wars are kind of a neo-Marxist thing, but in many senses, and the book tries to draw this out, it's also it's also a radical critique of Marxism. Marxism, minimally at least had a teleological view of history. It was kind of an arc of progress. And it was a materialist philosophy. It's rooted in material structures and a, and a notion of the world, an ontological realism, i.e. the world exists. And we can come to understand it and therefore transform the world. So the post-structuralists ultimately critiqued that. They argue that there's no such thing as objectivity and truth. And they place a, a, a theoretical and philosophical primacy on epistemology, how we know what we know. And they move away from an ontology, what actually exists. So, so I think on a metaphilosophical, almost a transcendental level in Western civilization, in the Anglophone world at least, that has been one of the big cultural shifts we've seen. There's been a conveyor belt process of graduates being educated in these ideas that, that have then come out into broader culture. And so and the essential argument is, uh, is a social, is, it, it places primacy on social constructivism. Essentially, the, the real world doesn't exist. Reality doesn't exist. All reality is essentially are sets of contested, discursive or ideological constructs endlessly at war with each other. Okay, and so there's and there's, so there's no way of ultimately adjudicating the truth between these these different social constructs. 
given that there's no such thing as reality. And therefore, all of human life is characterised by this endless philosophical struggle to impose one's truth. In other words, if we're looking at the background, the set of the show, and I claim that the wall is made of brick, and you claim that it's made of, I don't know, glue, who's right or wrong isn't a matter of the truth. It's a matter of who, which of us has more power, status, influence in current society. And therefore, that person gets to impose their will on everybody exactly. else. Exactly. Right. And, and, so, and so in the book, what I do is I, I identify that social constructivism as a fundamental philosophical transcendental value that is now at the heart of Western civilization, in particular Anglophone civilization. And, and, and so, and that's exactly what it argues. There's no such thing as truth or objectivity or science, and therefore everything is about contestation, power, power. And essentially, so uh, if I, it, so and and so the decolonizing critique is that you had colon, formal colonialism, uh, extraterritorial acquisition, and what's happened is uh, in Western civilization today, which which is is fundamentally based upon colonial discourses. That construct the world in 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 a kind of often as a duality. It draws on Derrida. It says that there's a there is a there's a dominant and a subordinate. There's the white, black, male, female. Yeah, Western, non-Western. So there's, and there's a, there's an inferiority and a superiority, which again Derrida completely contested. All this stuff, by the way, is fundamentally philosophically contested. It has very little veracity. Interesting in and of itself, no doubt about that. But anyway, so 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 it argues that. So that social constructivism has really escaped the, the campus petri dish and now spilled out into broader culture, okay? I, in the book, I argue that we have to hang on to a sense of reality and I argue for ontological realism, scientific realism. And what I try to do in the book is to sort of unpack that and relate this to some of the big ish, bigger issues about geopolitics and decolonizing and the broader malaise in Western culture. And essentially what it argues is we have to re- uh, focus our uh, philosophical or a value primacy on what exists, what is real. Yeah. So, so Constantine, you may say that that's made of brick, and I may say it's made of glue, but because of the mind independence nature of that wall, you're more right than me, because it's on. There is such a thing as ontological reality. Francis, you may believe that you can fly, you can you can flap your arms and you'll be a bird, and you can jump out of this window right now. And every single time, you're going to hit the deck. Don't be transpecious. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to hit the deck. And you're going to hit the deck because there's the ontological reality of gravity. Mm. In other words, there is a world that exists independently of our consciousness. Okay? And because of that, it creates a boundedness on what is true and what's not true. In other words, there's a rational adjudication. You may believe that you know, earthquakes are the angers of the gods, or I may believe it. But we know uh, that it's the, it's the tectonic movement of the plates of the earth. Do you see what I mean? So because of, because of the primacies placed on ontology or reality, it's why Kathleen Stock's book, she's a philosopher, her subtitle was Why Reality Matters. It's a material reality. So I argue that we must return to basic values, but not in terms of imposition, but we have to ultimately return to the rational adjudication of different claims as to one's truth. Some are more true than others. Otherwise, we end up in that social constructive stew of judgmental relativism. You can't have an opinion. How dare you have, think that? My truth is as valid as your truth. You say it's brick, it's not brick. That's a mere imposition of your colonial mindset on me. And who are you to say that to me? My truth is my truth. I can define who I am. I can be whatever I wish to be. There's no such thing as truth. And your desire to put that on me is a mere uh, imposition. How dare you? You see what I mean? So you begin to see. So, so that's a big part of it, of uh, is the, the old cliche, politics is downstream of culture. You've heard that hundreds of times, no doubt about that. But that, but that captures something. What, what the, the, the stew that we stew through, unconsciously, not even knowing it, it's just reproduced. Un unconsciously, often does come from a much deeper philosophical, theoretical base, conceptual base. So Western civilization now, I'll wrap up in a couple of seconds, Western civilization now is characterized by a generic judgmental relativism and social constructivism, which is fundamentally antithetical 
to the values that came before. And I would argue some of the values that really helped to progress all of human civilization. Doug, there's a lot to unpick there. But firstly, this is really dangerous. And, and, and I'll give an explanation as to why. Um, I remember, I think it was Clinton, actually. I saw an interview uh, with that non-problematic figure, Bill Clinton. He was talking about uh, peace talks between the Arabs and the, uh, the Israelis. And he said, the first thing is, right, we disagree on everything here. Can we agree that it's Monday? And they went, yeah, yeah, we all agree that it's Monday. The problem is, if you can't even agree that it's Monday, then you're never going to come to any type of agreement on the more complex or important things. Exactly. And so, and, 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 and so what that does is that that's exactly right. That foregrounds a judgmental relativism. It says there's no such thing as truth. And human interaction is always therefore characterized as a classic Foucault, Foucaultism. Human interaction, therefore, is always characterized by a form of discursive struggle. Uh, human interaction, so essentially, it's always about the imposition of power and knowledge and truth. I'm imposing my truth onto you. So you can really, there, once you understand that concept, you can really begin to unpack a lot of what we see in, in the culture war. There are other elements to it, of, of course, you know, the, the kind of the weaponization of bureaucracy and technocratic regimes, uh, the complete incapacity of the uh, so-called conservative party to even get ahead of any of this or get its head around it, the generic sort of gen general philosophical drift that we've seen. Uh, but it's very dangerous. That These ideas are quite dangerous because um, on the campus you can have these ideas, uh, but when they spill out, you can begin to see the human costs of some of this stuff in relation to what it does to social relations. The trans issue is a massive one. You've, you've seen a lot, of, a lot of this take place. It's kind of almost a, you know, the self-identification. You, know, so you have that. But then there's also the bigger issue in relation to what this means about the future of Western civilization in the context of an increasingly multipolar international system. Uh, the rise of China, the rise of other states, you know, and, and those states aren't characterized by that. If we can agree, you might disagree with me here, but if we can agree that one of the uh, big progressors of human civilization has been uh, arriving at a, a kind of a system that we can might call the truth, it's never always going to be the truth. But it's the best explanation that we have at that point in time. It might be a medical breakthrough, right? And 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 what happens? And it's not standing on the shoulder of giants. From that truth, we can continue to our inquiry, our open, rational inquiry, to find a, a better truth. That when te technological breakthroughs, for example, happen, we, we move forward. You see what I mean? If we can never even get to that foundation, foundational place in any way, it's everything's a contestation. Everything's a power struggle constantly. We're never going to advance. You see what I mean? We're, we're going to sort of almost collapse into a into a relativist stew. And again, in and you think about the rise of China related geopolitics. I'm sure we'll come on to the, talk a bit more about that in a bit. But if what has really helped uh, instantiate uh, a broadly a kind of open economic system, uh, economic advancement, innovation, and increasingly multiracial and multicultural societies that are predicated on liberal values of openness and tolerance and pluralism. If you introduce this concept of constant tribal discursive warfare, that can do great damage to the social contract, but also to, to politics in general. And you can begin to, and, and in the context of the rise of highly authoritarian and highly illiberal states, that's a very, very dangerous thing. Because what we have in the West is not natural. We've had a, in, in Europe minimally, Essentially, we've, we've lived on the institutional architecture of the post-war international settlement, the, the, the victory of the West, first over Nazi Germany and then over um, uh, the, the communist Soviet Union. Those are contingent things. They're not, there's, there's no necessary progressive arc in human history. So the ins institutional settlements that arose from those forms of victory aren't natural. They have, they, they, they've been imposed to some extent and they have to be defended. And in, within, those, within those things are sets of values that I would argue, broadly speaking, are very pro-human values. 
Uh, and But those aren't necessarily the values that other states share. And in, and in an increasingly multipolar international system of increased geopolitical competition and great power competition, interstate war, and, and the end of the end of history, we really should perhaps be slightly more cognizant of the kind of values that hold us together because we're going to need them going into the future. Hey, guys, Trigonometry needs your help. We took a big risk creating the show, and for us to keep doing the incredible work that you all love, we need your support. That's the only way we're going to stay independent and create content that you won't be able to find anywhere else. There is no other podcast where you'll hear interviews with Nigel Farage one week, and the next week you've got Aaron Bastani, the founder of left-wing show Navara Media, on the same platform. You know the mainstream media aren't honest. You know they've been caught lying again and again. You know they can't be trusted. The only way to change that is to make a stand and support independent content creators like Trigonometry to produce better and more honest content. We have big plans and we'll shortly be announcing exciting new shows and more terrific interviews with huge guests. That isn't going to happen without your help. When you support us, you also get incredible extra content, such as extended interviews with none of those irritating adverts, and they'll be released 24 hours early just for you. We'll have exclusive bonus interviews that only you get to hear. Click the link on the podcast description or find the link on your podcast listening app to join us. Support us and help change the way we have conversations and make the world saner. The, the woke argument that I am most sympathetic to out of all of them is lived experience. Because the reality is we all have a different lived experience. If, for instance, you're a five foot one, very attractive woman in her early 20s, your experience of life is going to be very different from me. You're going to be offered and given things and have opportunities that I simply won't have. But also as well, I'm not going to be, you know, intimidated by a bloke in a pub pestering me and wanting to have sex with me and not listening to no. Do you see what I mean? I do, but so, but I think what you're saying there, basically we all have our own viewpoints based on our history. And that, that's, an, that's an entirely fair point, mm. absolutely completely fair point. But what I think, what, again, what a lot, you, you, get, you tend to get this a lot, in, in, in often like progressive movements in particular, mm-hmm. you get a nice little word like lived experience or yeah. equality. And who can, you know, who can just like you know who can disagree? But then it becomes it be, it's an empty signifier that becomes filled with something much more often quite illiberal or mm. authoritarian. So lived experience. What you're essentially saying is we all have our own viewpoint depending on where we come from. That's pretty much yeah. That that that's 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 kind of a fair point. Yeah. But what but what lived experience has become in reality? It's like communism. It's all about equality. Eh, not quite. So what lived experience has become is uh, a kind of authoritarian power job insofar as when I talk about my lived experience, that's my truth. And how dare you question my truth? And you get that quite a lot in, in <laughs> I've seen that a lot. You know, so essentially what lived experience is, is it, as, a, as a kind of uh, operative power play concept is really about, it's about saying, this is my lived experience, invariably from an, a, a historically maligned or oppressed minority. Mm-hmm. And therefore I have greater truth and greater social power. You need, so therefore you need to shut up and listen to me and basically do what I want. Now, I'm from a really poor working class family in Hackney. I'm, you know, my demographic in terms of white working class kids in university, if I start going around to people and say, well, I'm from a poor working class family and I want this and you've got to do this because that's my lived experience. So lived experience is all well and good. But again, essentially, that you've got to be cognizant of the, 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 the capacity to instrumentalise these concepts and weaponize these concepts for power. And a lot of this stuff we see is all about power, it's about institutional power, making money, and that kind of stuff. So lived experience is one of them. You've seen this now. Scientists talk about lived experience. For me, it's one of those kind of very odd flip authoritarian, totalitarian concepts, where essentially it goes from what you said, entirely fair enough, and then completely agree, to being shut up, do what I say, because I'm an oppressed minority, and that's my lived experience, and what you're saying doesn't count. Yeah. I've seen that time and time again. It is used, and that's the thing that I hate about it. Instead of it being a point of a point of discussion where someone can go, look, I understand that, but you need to understand that as a black bloke growing up in 1980s Brixton, yeah. 
I was targeted. I had, you know, I was racist. I was denied opportunities. And we need to talk about this and we need to be honest about this. Instead, yeah. it's like you said, it's now become a weapon in yeah. order to shut people up. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and, and, and even then, one, one hopes that if you're talking about the lived experience to ultimately open up the human, the human heart, this is what you're really talking about. Yeah. You're saying, I had this pain, or I had this oppression, and I'm giving you my heart here, I'm lived experience, my personal experience. Mm -hmm then one would hope that that rests on an openness and a human grammar of compassion and empathy. Yeah. Which, yeah, but so often it's not. This is the problem. It becomes weaponized and instrumentalized. And I think I've seen this time and time again, uh, you know, so essentially as a, a, it's not a cruel point I'm making, but as a banal point, which is banal in the nice sense, in terms of an obvious point, lived experience, personal experience, of course, but, but then when that starts to become a, 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 an operative value at the apex point of institutional cultures, then you're going wrong. Well, what you're talking about really is that some concepts can be misapplied. If you and I are having a conversation about what it's what it was like in 1980s Soviet Union, yeah. I can be, well, I actually grew up there. Here's, here's what, what my yeah. take on it yeah. was. But if we, you and I were talking about economic statistics about 1980 Soviet Union and you were saying to me, well, did you know the blah, blah? I was like, well, actually, my lived experience. Well, that doesn't apply in the realm of statistics, observable realities of that kind, etc. So I think sometimes it's just a concept that, as you say, has been expanded way beyond its remit and people will use it to achieve ends that it can't be used to achieve. Yeah, or, or, you, or to stick with your example, you say, oh, I grew up in 1980s Soviet Union and that was my lived experience, right? And, uh, and I, I make a point, oh, no, I don't want you to speak because that's my lived experience. And, you know, so what you, what, you, what, you, what you see is what I call a trauma shield, mm. a trauma mm. bubble. You know, you sort of talk about it and, again, it speaks to this kind of uh, this, this politics of vulnerability and this sense the weaponization of trauma we see as well. It's a very common thing, and victimhood. Yeah. And, and the sad thing about that is genuine, you know, vic it, may be, it may well be true, but when it's, when it's, dis when it's, it's weaponized, instrumentalized as essentially a power play to, for me to say, well, yeah, you, you've, I, I was born in the 1980s Soviet Union, and it, therefore it gives me, uh, I'm on a higher moral perch than you to sort of give you my truth, and it trumps your truth. And, and under that, then, there's an, an emotional power play. Okay, so let me chart this in simple terms because I want to get from what you're saying, which is erosion of the concept of truth, tribalism, uh, accelerated by the very idea that we all have our own unique perspective and mine is more valuable than yours because I have a certain blah, 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 to the concerns you have about geopolitics and geostrategy, etc. Right, And so the idea, correct me on any of this if I'm incorrect, is because... Western societies are increasingly divided along these arbitrary lines between groups that are drawn not by a contestation of what reality actually is, but simply about who can make the most noise, who can have the greatest claim to victimhood, who can have the, the biggest complaint, whatever it might be. We actually can't agree about what our values are and therefore when we are engaging in the battle of civilizations or at least in geopolitical competition, we don't know what it is that we stand for. And so we're living off the fumes of the values that were created in the post-war period that we no longer as a society actually universally believe. Yeah. I mean, so think about this, right? In terms, uh, if we take uh, this desire for... Uh, diversity, inclu inclusion, and equity. So equity uh, is a concept that obviously conflates equality of opportunity, which is a completely optimal way of running society in many senses. You want the best people, to, in, in, irrespective of their sexuality, their gender, their race, to get as best chance as possible to then, to then move forward. And ideally, when you aggregate that at the societal level, you're going to get great outcomes from that. So, so that concept has really been conflated and collapsed into equality of outcome where essentially you get uh, often technocratic elites who, who will essentially engineer and engender uh, forms of in inclusive cultures to make sure everybody gets 
the same. So that so that that then is obviously in many senses that that then is kind of fundamentally antithetical to Western uh, politics. And in fact, it's more it's more commensurate ultimately the equality of outcome might, uh, argument to sort of Soviet sort of a Soviet system. This is why my next book, which I'm currently working on, is why the, the West lost the Cold War. We thought we, we won it in geopolitical terms, but he lost it in co- metaphysical terms. So, so, so that's fundamentally. But, but, but and so essentially, so when, but when you aggregate that out to a societal level, where you have uh, technocratic elites that are kind of have taken it on their holy mission to uplift people, often people don't even want it. Uh, and and if, if you aggregate that out at a society level where, where people are potentially doing jobs not because they're the best people to do the jobs or not because they're the most qualified or, or et cetera, i.e. The, the, the diversity is, is, a, is a sub-variable of a much higher apex value, which is one of merit and selection on the basis of merit. If diversity becomes the apex value in the institutional selection process, when you aggregate that out, i.e., the, the, the intersectional characteristic of the individual doing the job. It becomes more important than the capacity to do the job. Well, there was a brilliant article, I think the magazine's, online magazine is called Palladium, called Why uh, Complex Systems Won't Survive the Competence Crisis. And it talks all about, I really recommend everybody read it. It talks all about how basically in America, a lot of very complex systems like aviation safety yeah. and the military, etc., are actually being very badly affected by yeah. these diversity initiatives. So, so I mean... So essentially, there's nothing wrong with diversity per se in any way, and there's nothing wrong with inclusion in any way. But the, but the, the thing is, th- those things must be, uh, or if you, you know, those things must be ultimately outcomes of a much more important process, which is the selection on the basis of capacity and merit. The, the problem is with, the, with that argument, Doug, is that I don't know that that is possible because not all groups have the same talents, uh, aspirations, skill sets. Mm-hmm. And that has been true throughout history. So uh, some diversity will be a natural consequence of selection or competence. But I also think we have to recognize that not all people want the same things or are good at the same things. And so diversity, I'm increasingly persuaded by the argument that artificially created diversity is not a good thing. But, but, the, but, the other, but also, I completely agree with your point, the other thing about that is often... Uh, the equity, equality of outcomes thing, it, yeah. again, it underplays or completely erases human agency and therefore human dignity. Yes. Mm. If you've got a squirrel, I'm going to give a really banal example here. If you've got a squirrel that goes out in the winter or in the summer and gathers all the nuts up and, and puts it all away, you know, and hides it away and works hard, and then another one sits there just sunbathing and smoking a blunt or whatever, a squirrel, <laughs> whatever, you know, whatever, right? How fair is it then if you go along to the, the school number A that saved up the nuts and say, well, you know what, our friend over here has got no nuts now, it's winter now, he's cold and shivery, give me half your nuts to give to him. I mean, that's not, that's not, so in other words, human agency, people's choices, uh, application, self-discipline and hard work are really also fundamental values. So in many senses, this kind of woke dispensation, we'll put it in crude terms, erases the, 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 the innate dignity of human agency. And it erases the incentive to create, build, which, strive, yeah. achieve, which is what you're talking about exactly. when it comes to geopolitics. So, 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 so when we go back to your original question about geopolitics, if some of the, uh, the – it's very much about values and metaphysical, almost transcendental values, we can put it in those kind of terms. If we've had the subversion of the transcendental or the metaphysical values of Western civilization – where new sets of values are replacing the old ones. And that's we, we then aggregate that at a societal level, a civilizational level. And we're doing this in the context of an increasingly multipolar international system, the rise of incredibly powerful civilizational states that have extraordinary sense of, of nationalist purpose, national pride, also feed off uh, a decolonizing narrative and also now spreading around the world and as an influence operation, a psychological operation, I'm not saying it's all rests at the, heat, the, the feet of Chinese or Russian propagandists, but the idea that there's not influence and psychological warfare taking place is for the birds. Trust me. Trust me on that. So, well, Why do you say Why should people trust you on that, Dan? I, I've, I've worked in the security, intelligence, military fields, academic fields 
for many, many years. My PhD was on counterinsurgency warfare, for goodness sake, psychological operations. I'm not, you know, I'm not, you know, it's not, and it's, and why wouldn't they do that? Of course they do it. And there's nothing wrong with it. If, if you think about it in terms of this is basically great power politics, this is, this is my bread and butter. Great power, great power competition is my bread and butter. And states will, states will do what states do, right? In their national interests or national security interests. Of course, China, using its incredible economic leverage with the Belt and Road Initiative, is running all over the Caribbean investing tens of billions of, of dollars in the Caribbean infrastructure projects. And of course, they're going to say, you need you know, reparations against the colonial masters and to, to, to sort of create this uh, soft power. Of course. And you know what? That, that's, that's natural and normal. I mean, states will, will engage in psychological operations and warfare. But coming back to the other, but, so we can come out, but come back, to, if we then think that, what we have in the West isn't natural. We didn't just roll out of bed with a pina colada and a nice sort of international, uh, no, not much war here is, is there, not been invaded since 1066 because we're an island, stopping power of water, etc. But none of this is natural, right? And it rests on an international dispensation, an international order underpinned by American power, American military power in particular. Ukraine would be most probably singing from the Russian national anthem, absent the very early intervention of the Brits, but in particular the Americans. Right? I mean, that's really so. America remains the key linchpin power in in the in the, the broader liberal, what's called the liberal international order. If it keeps being characterised by this process of denigration and being torn apart, uh, you do have these very capable states out there, and human history is doesn't. Doesn't doesn't just rest somewhere. It's a constant process of flux and change. So that comes to sort of the, the big point of the book. Don't take what we have for granted. I mean, it sounds really trite to say it, but freedom isn't free. Freedom isn't free. It has to be defended and loved and cherished. Cherished, and it just being nice to people, being kind, is not enough. Unfortunately, you need people like me and others. Or sort of to some extent, you know, or to sort of guard against stuff. Uh, and that what we have is to some extent under the outer edges of it, most people don't see it, rests on a hard power basis. You have a, you know, you, you know, you're on Russia and Ukraine, you see it really brutally there. Uh, great power competition in the fields of Ukraine is very raw. And we see it in the flesh there. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. yeah. So that's a really big thing. And so I try to tie it all together in the book. We have to see this stuff in a much broader civilizational context. If you value honesty, integrity, and diversity, all things that are increasingly lacking in established media, then consider supporting us at Trigonometry. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews, plus exclusive content. Click the membership link on the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us. But Doug, you made a really good point, which is it, uh, freedom, needs to be defended, loved, and cherished. My issue, I don't think there's enough people in this country, there's more in America, but there's not enough in this country who defend, love, and cherish it. And once that happens, we're in a pretty parlous state, aren't we? That's a great point. I mean, a depressing point for me was during the pandemic. Mm. Uh, there By the way, Doug, this is what I do in the in the in the in this show. I just make everyone miserable. And kill the vibe. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I used to do in my that's, youth, and I do that, it now. No, it's great. So essentially, so you know, the, the, I think the British, the, the kind of cultural DNA of the Brit, pugnacious. There's an element to the British culture don't like doesn't like to be in t told what to do. There is this kind of almost innate DNA of freedom there. You know, you can trace it back, and people take. Take the Mickey out of it, but the you know, Magna Carta and there's that you know standing up against Nazi Germany, standing up against communism. There is that kind of very strong sense in the British people. But on the flip side of that, there is also that finger wagging and follow the rules and the curtain twitching. So I found the pandemic to be really, really depressing mm -hmm. because it really brought out that element that's that 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 part of the British character, moral policing, and you know 
dobbing in your neighbour and stuff like that. And then we saw we saw that uh, in British politics, you know, with the Conservative Party. I think the Conservative Party, I hate to say it, but I think they, they do bear a large chunk of responsibility because I just don't think they quite get the, what the stakes that are involved uh, in in this. And if, if, if this rests... If, if, if the ultimate meta value of a conservative party is is the preservation of a, a specific civilizational dispensation, they've really dropped the ball on that. Well, the only the only objective of the conservative party at the moment is the preservation of the conservative party, and they're not even doing that very well. No, <laughs> no, it's an endless psychodrama. Go if you want to stick. Just a quick point about uh, yeah, uh, carry on. Sorry, no, I didn't no, mean to. No, 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 not at all. But I mean, um, but I mean. It, this is also the frustration of, is that you, you, the, the, the people say that the Conservative Party are sort of weaponising the culture war and they're using <laughs> the culture war as a kind of like a weapon to divide, divide the working class or... The, my thing is it's complete nonsense. Uh, the Conservative Party, as far as I can tell, on the culture war are utterly strategically clueless. I'll give you an example of it, right? In the last three months of the Blair government, okay, they passed the Equality Act. Now, the Equality Act is a really innovative piece of legislation, but what it essentially does uh, is it mandates public sector bodies, the National Health Service, any public sector body, to, to promote equality of opportunity between people of protected characteristics, sexuality, gender. So it, sound, it sounds, you know, progressive and, you know, but what that's actually done is it's underwritten the massive growth of EDI and bureaucracies across the public sector. Uh, so you, you see today, there's headlines today, you know, or, you know, about the woke civil service, right? So you, you have that uh, uh, across the British public sector and it legally mandates public sector bo bodies to promote equality of opportunity. Now, what's the metric for equality of opportunity? Outcome. <laughs> <laughs> so you get all these EDI bureaucracies, the commissars in the public sector, the woke commissar, if you want to use crude language, who have used the, the innovations around the Equality Act to push this stuff through. So it's a constant frustration of mine to see these headlines in the Daily Mail, Daily Telegraph or wherever, constant uh, culture war whack-a-mole headlines about the culture war. Oh, isn't it terrible? Diversity management, isn't this and that? And yet, and yet these public sector bodies quite rightly can turn around and say, well, it's our, it's our legal duty to do this. Mm. So the idea that the Tories have been fighting a culture war when they've, they've left this on the books, left for them like a, a, a grand master's chessboard, the last three months of the Blair government and have left it completely unreformed and then the pernicious and authoritarian liberal elements of that act, you know, the unconscious bias, the microaggressions, all this stuff we see, that all comes from that act too. Why? Because one of the ways in which employers in the public sector can discharge their duty under, under, under the Equality Act to say, well, we've run these training programs and all of our employees have gone through these training programs and therefore we've, we've, we've discharged our duty. Do you see what I mean? So it's all the pernicious, the pernicious elements of that act. You know, I've, got, I've gone off a little bit there yeah. from geopolitics, but it just, it just underlines the point about we have to understand the deeper tactical and strategic terrain upon which a lot of this stuff that we talk about in the culture wars and geopolitics, it rests on a much deeper infrastructure. Do you have a website or do you plan to have a website? Because if you do, then EasyDNS is a company for you. EasyDNS is the perfect domain name registrar provider and web host for you. They have a track record of standing up for their clients, whether it be cancel culture, de-platform attacks, or overzealous government agencies. He knows about that. So will you in a second. <laughs> EasyDNS have rock solid network infrastructure and fantastic customer support. They're in your corner no matter what the world throws at you, unless it's your ex-girlfriend, in which case you're on your own. <laughs> you know about that. <laughs> Move your domains and websites over to EasyDNS right now. All you've got to do is go to easydns.com forward slash triggered. That's easydns.com forward slash triggered. Use our promo code, which is also triggered, and get 50% off the initial purchase. Sign up for their newsletter, Access of Easy, which tells you everything you need to know about technology, privacy, and censorship. But it also speaks to just a lack of common sense. It's just a complete lack of common sense. If you're not going to get the best person for the job, the job isn't going to be done as well. If you're going to get rid of meritocracy, the whole industry is going to crumble because 
you are not going to be doing the job that you're meant to be doing as effectively, nothing, nothing's going to work. I don't understand why this is a particularly difficult point to grasp. Well, I think, again, I think you're absolutely, you've hit the nail on the head. But the dangerous thing about that is uh, by being inclusive and be kind and be empathetic, which is underpinning a lot of the, the drive for that stuff, which is wonderful. It sounds great. It's a wonderful thing, right? That it's the, it's the road to hell is paved with good intentions. If, again, if you, if you aggregate that out across a societal level, you're going to have suboptimal outcomes inbuilt into institutional cultures time and time and time again. And when you aggregate that out, that the quality of your life, the functioning of your services, uh, the way your money as taxpayers is spent will constantly be suboptimal. And it goes back to my original point. In the context of great power competition, do you, do you think for one second that the, the Chinese, who are an incredible civilization, thousands of years of history. I mean, what an, what an incredible country, what an incredible culture. It's just amazing. But, you know, they, do you, do you really think they are going to be saying, well, li little Johnny didn't pass his exam, but we'll give him the job anyway? Or, <laughs> you know, or, or we're going to, basically, we want to make our kids feel better so everybody's going to get a gold star here. It just doesn't work, does it? So no. that's not happening. So if we have this kind of broader Western malaise, uh, kind of America, which is the key, the key linchpin state in the Western-led international system, we need America's military power, intelligence powers, all that kind of stuff, right? If it's fractured along these increasingly tribal lines and in the context of increasingly economic power shifting a multipolar international system, the collapse of Western self-confidence, the collapse of Western civilization in terms of the, the values that have made it successful, made it uh, so strong, and the best place really for genuine diversity, for tolerance, for pluralism, for openness, for liberal values, yeah, there's a reason why millions of people come to, West, to the West. It's yeah. the benefits. <laughs> well, it's the benefits, basically. Yeah, yeah, no, no, absolutely. No, but it's the benefits of the, the, of deeper, the society. The deeper yeah, values yeah, that we yeah. have. Yeah. Yeah. A, an yeah. emphasis and a primacy placed on human dignity, the capacity to, for freedom to allow you to realise your dreams. Yeah, yeah. yeah everybody's always going to win a gold star. But broadly speaking, what other uh, uh, part of the world, where, where else would you want to live? Where else would any uh, minority wish to live in human history? Is it perfect? Of course it's not. But it's not a million miles from, you know, it's pretty good. Pretty yeah. good. Doug, how much of this is about um, feelings? Because you mentioned, you know, the Ch little Johnny in China isn't being praised for getting a D. But here, little Johnny is being praised for the effort that he put in to get a D. And, you know, I have a young son and my wife and I sort of argue about this or suddenly, we don't argue, but we, it's a constant ongoing yeah. conversation because on the one hand, yes, you want your children to grow up feeling happy and they made effort and blah, blah, blah. On the other hand, as we talked about, the wall is either made of brick or it's not. And you either got an A or you didn't. And your civilization is either successful or it's not. And your militaries are either capable of fighting or it's not. How much of this is about the the obsession with our own constant obsession about our well-being and our emotional well-being because some of the most meaningful things I've done in my life have been created and done in spite of periods when I've had to suspend my immediate feelings about how I feel in this moment and go and do something yeah. that's difficult Completely. or go and do something that's unpleasant Completely. or go and do something that's hard, Yeah. right? Yeah. So... How much of it is about that? Well, I, I, I understand the struggle that as a parent you feel. I am a parent uh, as well. And that is you want to nurture and love your children. Uh, and you, you, it's a fine line between making sure little Johnny's feelings aren't too hurt and you protect their precious self-esteem and you love them so much. But, but between also exposing them to, to values that are real independently of where we may be in our civilizational moment. They just are. The, the values are ultimately reality bites in that sense, right? So, so but, but I think I completely agree with your broad point, and that is I'm the same. I mean, I uh, feel anxiety a lot. I, uh, you know, uh, feel... I've, I've felt like my, my periods of, of most intense growth 
have become have come when I've been put under incredible pressure. I won't go too personal, but I mean, it, it, but it's you know, I used to have uh, uh, somebody who was close to me academically, senior to me, that, that supervised me. I won't go too much into it, and he was brutal, absolutely brutal. He would he'd give it, he'd tear it down, he'd you know, blah, blah, blah. really brutal. But in and he sort of tore me down, but then like. But in that process, I grew as an adult. You see what I mean? Yeah. So, so I, I, there's a uh, so it's sort of psychological. There's a lot of stuff is placed on psychological safety, and we need this, right? But what we're doing ultimately is what ultimately uh, makes you grow and become an adult and uh, uh, really thrive internally, spiritually, almost. Right? Are those are those moments of struggle? Deep struggle, deep emotional struggle. I, I say, I was born in Hackney. I went to some schools, inner city schools you couldn't begin to imagine. Maybe you could from the former Soviet Union. I don't, I don't know. know. I think yours <laughs> were a lot worse. Man. I mean, I'm talking about guns. If I'm you're talking about safety, like the Soviet Union was actually pretty safe. Yeah, know? well, my, my schools were characterised by constant violence, knives, CS gas, guns, guns. Uh, it, was, it was terrible, right? Uh, so... And a lot of my peer group are dead or in prison or, you know, whatever, right? So that, that was that. Um, and so, but the way I've tried to deal with it, I don't want to get too autobiographical here, but those moments of struggle uh, where you are pushed and steel sharpens steel and pressure creates diamond, those are fundamentally uh, important because those are the moments of real deep personal transformation. Those are the moments where you think you are who you are and that transforms you and it mangles you, but you come out on the other side and you're different, but different often in a good way. Agreed. Yeah, I think that's such an important point and it was something that I wanted to talk to you about. And look, we can bemoan these ideas, we can talk about the universities and all of it is relevant. But to me, that's just a symptom. Mm. That's just a symptom of the fact that we've become softer as a society. We just have, and therefore we're more prone to these ideas. Because actually, if we had a little bit of backbone and we said, to put it in colloquial terms, no, I don't believe this, I think it's a load of bollocks, piss off. Mm. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, at the same time, <laughs> I'm not arguing. I mean, where I came from was brutal. Mm-hmm in the home and outside the home. And I yeah. would never, ever wish anybody to experience that. So I'm not arguing that for a second. And I don't, I'm also not taking saying there's any great shakes in having that level of dysfunction. No yeah. way. And as a parent, you know, you know, you'd never wish that upon your children. So that's categorically not what I'm saying. But, but what I am saying is I, I, I think that uh, we do need to uh, move back to resilience some degree of personal resilience. And what I think is the broader point we can take from this is what I find very distressing is when institutions led by adults that should know better yeah. don't then draw the line in the sand of what you've just said or what uh, Constantine has just said. They kowtow, they collapse because they don't want to hurt the feelings of these people. Okay, but see, this is... And I'm exploring this with you. I'm sure, not arguing sure. with you. It's just something I'm thinking about myself because I'm sure you've seen this thing about how hard men create good times, yeah. good times, you know, create yeah. weak men, weak men create hard times, and it goes round yeah. and round and round. And the problem I see the way that we all talk about it is my childhood wasn't easy either, and my wife's childhood wasn't easy either, and neither of us wants to create mm, yeah. that childhood for my yeah. son, right? But if he's going to have a really comfortable, happy existence where every need is taken care of and he's never upset and he's praised for the effort at school and, and his mum, all of that, then he's going to become weak. And it's inevitable. How do you build resilience without being challenged, without having that difficulty? Well, 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 would be the counter-argument. Well, I, I think well, you need to challenge your son. And and, and not, not going to make it personal, but one needs to challenge, obviously. It's, it's the construct, though, isn't it? We do live, I mean, the, the childhood I had, yeah. you couldn't, I mean, you wouldn't replicate it now. There's different sets of values. And I think that is to be celebrated to some extent. I'm not, I, I think, I'm not saying the hardness in terms of physical. Uh, but that's not what I mean. No, Francis, no, I, what's that quote you, you talk about, the boxer? 
It says it's hard to... Oh, right. It's the old Jack Dempsey quote, which is, it's very, it goes, it's very hard to get up and train at five o'clock in the morning when you're wearing silk boxes. Yeah. When you slip, sleep on silk sheets. <laughs> yeah. This is my point is, is it... I almost start to wonder whether the decline of the West is inevitable because we are so successful, we are so comfortable... You think think about you know the Ukrainians now, for example, yeah. are sending their young men mm -hmm. to go and fight and be maimed and die yeah. on the front. Yeah. If you live a life where you're going to live to a hundred, yeah, you you're going to have every material creature comfort yeah. taken care of. You know, the latest polling shows most of the country thinks that the government's job is literally to yeah. provide everything yeah. for them yeah. and wipe yeah. their bottom yeah. or whatever. Why would why would you why would I send my son to go and fight on the front line? Why? He can live to 100, have everything he needs, right? Why? Why would any of us do that? Why would we fight for anything? Well, I, I think a couple of things. I think that first and foremost, I think that whilst I don't wish to denigrate that the love that lays at the heart of that 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 what we're talking about, and it yeah. is it is love, yeah, really. Uh, I don't wish to denigrate it for a second, but to sort of draw it slightly out of the personal realm a bit more and relate it back to the bigger arguments, what I would say is this. It goes back to my institutional point, and that is we've swung too far that way. I'm not saying we need less love, or, but we, I think what's happened in the West is we've got too comfortable, but we've got too comfortable in that process. We've forgotten the, 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 the fundamental values that we need to sustain ourselves. Right. You see what I mean? Uh, I do. But what I'm saying to you is, is that I wonder whether it's possible because if we are so successful and so comfortable uh, and so protective of our children yeah. and so on, I'm not saying we need less love for our kids at all. Why would they be strong? Why would they be uh, willing to deal with conflict because that's part of what we're talking about, right? Is willing to be able to put something valuable on the line to yeah. risk life and limb to protect what you have. Yeah. But if you've always had it, if you, if your parents have always had it, you don't even recognize the connection anymore. Yeah. This is where I think the West is. So uh, my concern is you, you talked about how those formative experiences mm -hmm. are often quite difficult and mm -hmm. challenging and traumatic. Mm -hmm. I don't know that you're going to get young people, people even in our generation, to wake up to that reality without a really big hard slap in the face. Well, I, I completely agree what you just said. But I, I think that uh, reality sometimes bites. So it, it's, 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 it, that's, that's a hard thing. You're right. I mean, on the one hand, we have a, a very comfortable uh, existence. Uh, on the one hand, even on, on an absolute level or a relative levels, you know, in, 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 in the UK. So we, we have that. But at the same time, you know, you want to sort of maintain some d degree of uh, the, these, these things. So, I mean, it's a very hard question to answer because on the one, on the one hand, we, uh, we have what we have. Uh, but then we need to sort of, I guess it's kind of like uh, what you'd think, it's kind of a, not the best metaphor, but imagine that, we have a shotgun in, the, in a cabinet, a dusty old cabinet somewhere, and we keep that for our sort of home protection, and there's cobwebs all over it. But nonetheless, we still prize it, and we take it out of the cabinet. Every now and again, we oil it down like a very precious thing. It's the, it's the, it's the last line of defence, ultimately. We live in you know, a rough place, you know, but we keep it there, and it's cobwebs, and we, we thank goodness we never, ever have to use this, this thing. But nonetheless, we still are cognizant that it's there. It's an anchor point for us. It's 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 our final. It, and so so I think I think maybe therefore then a greater awareness of those values. A, 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 I think a, a, maybe a philosophical reboot of the value of Western civilization and some of the values that have sat at the heart of its success. I would also like to see you know at the same time I, I'm not against this kind of the, the, the parenting that we've discussed, mm, mm. but I would I would. I think that what's happened goes back to my institutional point. There has been a complete moral failure and the collapse of leaders and adults in our dominant institutions where they, they have ultimately, in the name of being kind and uh, being inclusive, not held the line. or Not even not hold the line. They've literally thrown themselves onto the floor and, and gone like that. Uh, the Church of England being a classic example, but across, you know, the National Trust, 
all of our all of our institutions seem to wish to uh, genuflect and deconstruct themselves and ultimately repudiate the very nature of Western civilization. And I think this is this comes to another big point, and that is the kind of potential backlash that that kind of institutional signalling can create in the UK. Uh, we're seeing it now. There's some polling data recently about sort of issues around trans issues. We're seeing it in 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 the politics of America too. And and so uh, whilst these institutions think they're doing God's will, or they're you know, or they're, they're deconstructing and on this this sort of thing. That they're, they're, I think that they're potentially storing up a great deal of trouble down the line, potentially, for British politics. Because it, it, it does rest on a script of national repudiation, the undermining of institutions, the constant belittling of ordinary people. You saw it in the, in the Brexit debates, for example, all the time. Uh, and it, it, so, so that's another element, too, that I think we should be aware of. And it's also, as well, the absence of leadership. We, we, it seems that we are completely devoid of leaders. And it's not just in politics. If you read about sport, there'll be, there's people that in sport saying it's more and more difficult to find captains, to find leaders, because it doesn't seem that anybody wants to take on that mantle because people collapse, they crumble at the first start of criticism. But this is what I'm saying, guys. <laughs> this is kind of my point is... Uh, we can blame institutions, we can blame the people at the top of sporting yeah. organisations, but if you have generations of people coming through who've been trained to think in a particular way, who've been trained to think that their feelings matter more than reality, who've been trained to think uh, by the experiences around them, not, yeah. not because someone, a woke teacher is indoctrinating yeah. them, but they've grown up from from the age of three with everything that they need catered but, but, to, but that, why would they be resilient? But, but, that, but that's why I think that there has been a failure on, on, on multiple levels, not least in the universities. Universities, when I first started, for example, were, were somewhere where uh, still kind of very late teen brain children, 18 years, but still young, would go and, and, would, in, and would be subject to those kind of sort of very strong critical debate, push, pushing them, pushing them outside the comfort zone, being exposed to a broad set of ideas, contested. It was, it was a much more sort of politically uh, uh, heterogeneous as well 20-odd years ago. And those kind of values that I spoke about were more in the university context. There was, a, there, there was a sense that you go to university and you're pushed hard, right? So I, so, so I think that there's various reasons why universities have moved from that model to being essentially... Con a sort of continuation of school and, and therefore the kind of commodification but also the diversity inclusion, I mean, that often revolves around issues around self-esteem and making people feel good, right, rather than pushing people outside their comfort zone so they grow. They grow as people, they grow as adults, which is ultimately truly liberational, is it not? Uh, so I think in the university context, that, that has really fallen down. So if, if we think that there are kind of transmission points in one's maturing journey, in terms of what you've said, so your son is, you know, you love, and but then the sets of institutions that he he will move through is a process of maturation. But that maturation process, I think, has been lost to quite a large extent. And universities have really dropped the ball on that. Doug, have you ever been punched in the face? I have had my <laughs> nose broken about eleven times. Right, and so have I. I've been I've been punched in the face. I've been beaten up. Whatever else, only someone who has never been punched in the face would use a sentence like words of violence. Yeah. yeah. And that comes from someone who has had a completely modicoddled life. Because if you have been punched in the face, you will know that words are not violent. Someone saying something nasty about you is not the same as having your nose broken. And I think that's at the very crux of what we're talking about here. Absolutely. Well, that because that draws on what we spoke about at the very beginning. If you believe that uh, there's no such thing as truth and uh, words have the capacity to conjure into being a reality, mm. socially construct reality. Mm. If I talk about uh, uh, something and it's intersubjectively agreed upon, that thing becomes real, right? So for people that are saying words are violence, they are unconsciously, implicitly or explicitly, invariably implicitly drawing from a deeper uh, philosophical value set that comes from that kind of 
deconstructivist, post-structuralist, socially constructivist epistemology theory of, 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 world, of, of truth. Words are violence in, according to their theoretical perspective because by saying this, you're bringing into being the reality of it. You're narrating that into being. It's complete garbled nonsense, but that's, that's their position. So for them, but I completely agree. Is your, I mean, the, the realism of actually getting punched in the face, getting your nose broken or whatever, versus that. But then again, I, I guess that speaks to the kind of the dalliance. And again, it's perhaps an overused metaphor. But you often hear this about the late days of Rome, right? Where there'd be cross-dressing and mass orgies and sexual de degeneracy and, and all this stuff taking place. And essentially the argument is, you know, you're, they're at such a comfortable point. And then the elites, the institutions, and the, 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 the marital valour and the honour and the integrity was lost. And it became increasingly, they were bored. They had this luxury. The elites had this aristocratic and the elites, the, the Roman people had this luxury. Decadence. Decadence. And they started, it, it was a frippery. And before you know it, the barbarians are through the gate. And people in, inside Rome maybe have opened up the gate. They let the barbarians in. It's, oh, it's all fun. It's a, it's a wonderful, joyous occasion. We're being inclusive or whatever. I don't want to extend the metaphor too far, but you see what I mean? I completely, I completely agree. Well, on that happy note, uh, <laughs> we're going to wrap up this part of the interview, Doug. Uh, we're going to move to locals in a second and ask you some questions from our audience and continue the discussion as well. Before we do, though, we always wrap up this part of the interview with one final question, which is, what's the one thing we're not talking about that we really should be? Ooh, we've covered it to some extent, but the one thing I think that we need to think more about is the contingent and fragile nature of where we are in the West. Uh, if there's one takeaway point I try to do in the book, and that is to say that what we have in the West is not natural. It's, a, it's, a, it's an institutional outcome. It's a social outcome. It's, it rests on values and, and, and the will to power to defend it. Uh, and it's not too bad. It's really not too bad. So we need to be cognizant the primary takeaway, we have to be cognizant of what we have and the contingent and fragile and precious nature of it. And we throw it away, we let it destroy itself at great, great peril. Doug, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Follow us now on Locals where we're going to be asking Doug more questions and some of your questions as well. See you there, guys. So why, why are you doing this? Why are you putting your head above the metaphorical parapet? Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.